0: Hey guys, welcome to Hope It Helps. My guest today has had an incredibly unique career and experience. From a young age growing up in the US, he always had a desire to travel the world. After completing university, he set out to fulfill that desire and ended up living in nine countries spanning all the way from Japan to Palestine, Nigeria, France, and many more. He always had a passion for working with social entrepreneurs with the aim of making a social impact on a global scale which then led him to getting a position at the World Economic Forum back in 2014. As a result of his experience in the Middle East and North Africa, he was first responsible for managing the young global leaders community. And as a result of his success, he then became responsible for managing their entire Asia portfolio as the head of social engagement for Asia. During this episode, we discuss his journey working at the World Economic Forum. He shares with us his experience in global community management and working with social entrepreneurs. And we talk about the importance of finding ourselves and seeking out others who share a similar vision in order to lead a happy and fulfilled life. Through his work, he's been able to launch numerous initiatives in many countries supporting various causes from girls' education to energy, rural development, and much more. His ability to connect with others and manage a global community consisting of thousands of people spanning across multiple cultures is something I really admire and I think many people could learn a lot from his experience. Please welcome to the show, the incredible Mr. Ravi Kanaria.
1: Hey, thanks. Glad to be here, Khalid.
0: Thank you for your time. I
2: really appreciate it. So Ravi, I wanted to talk to you today because you've had a pretty interesting experience uh, over the past few years. And I thought it'd be really cool to talk about the work that you've done, both at you know the World Economic Forum and some of the other initiatives that you've been involved in. But I wanted to start mm-hmm. with, why don't you just give us some background about yourself and, you know, how did we get? How did we get there? How did we get to the World Economic Forum?
1: Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so my story starts in the U.S. Um, I was born uh, in New Jersey, near New York, for people who are uh, more familiar with that. Um, my parents are both from India, actually, um, and so you know I have kind of a mix of Eastern and Western cultures, uh, you know, in me through my experiences growing up and everything. Um, but yeah, I basically grew up my whole life in the U S in spite of having an international background. I never really traveled much, uh, outside of the country, except for to India where I went twice, uh, as a kid, but I got bit by the, uh, travel bug when I was, um, in high school. And so after I went to college and started working, um, you know, part of that wanderlust just really became a big part of my life. And over the past, um, I don't know, 10 years or so, I think I've I've traveled quite a lot. I've lived and worked in a variety of different countries. And uh, today I find myself here uh, in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and that's kind of the, the short summary of sort of my, my journey at least. And I'm sure we'll dig into other parts of it as we uh, proceed in the conversation. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's really cool, man. So after, so as growing up, you didn't do so much traveling, and then after high school and when you or after university is when you're like, I want to take this chance, you know, travel the world, because I know you've lived in nine countries, you know, Japan, Tunisia, Palestine, Jordan, France. So you've like in a couple more. So you've you've been you've done well. I'll say you've you've done quite well. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good amount of countries, and where each so it was each one. What was the reason that you traveled to them? Was it just you had a place in mind you like it'd be cool to live there or what how did that you know how did you keep moving around from place to place
1: i mean every single one was for like a different thing um you know most of them were for like jobs or uh, internships of some kind or another a couple of them were for like university um but yeah really each one was for a very different thing and it's just really funny how one experience you know leads to another and that's kind of what happened um but yeah man i've been very very blessed i remember as a kid I wrote down like a wish list of like 10 things I want to accomplish in my life before I die. And one of them was to travel to at least six countries in the world. And, you know, it just gives you a sense about like at that time how that was like, you know, un- unobtainable for me or yeah, like, yeah. that was a very like difficult goal. But, um, but yeah, no, I've been very blessed in my life. Um, you know, to have had the opportunities that I've had and to, to learn about, you know, this amazing planet that we
2: live. Yeah, in. man. No, it's really, really cool to have all those experiences and experience so many different cultures. And to not because visiting a place is one thing. You can go like, oh, I had a nice holiday there. But when you live there, that's when you kind of get an understanding of what's that culture about, how are the people, what's the background, and like what's the mindset behind all of it.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, hundred percent.
2: And so when you were growing up, was you we are always like passionate about like social entrepreneurship is that something that you've always wanted to do because i know that's been primarily your work for the last you know couple of years so walk us through you know how did you get into social yeah. entrepreneurship
1: yeah you know social entrepreneurship i think when i was in uh, university especially in graduate school was something i was very passionate about i think there's a lot of people in the world who are looking for a sense of purpose in you know the work that they do um, and at the same time, I think there's this realization that, um, you know, organizations in the private sector have, you know, a lot of uh, advantages to offer uh, in terms of solving gl- global problems, right, because they do have sustainable business models, you know, they don't rely, you know, solely on like donors for financing. Um, and so, you know, like a lot of people, I think, in, um, you know, my, my generation and age group, we were looking for a way to combine those two things. Um, and so, you know, since then I've had an opportunity to work very closely, actually with uh, tons of social entrepreneurs, uh, at the world economic forum, uh, also at singularity university, uh, in the Bay area in California, where I used to work. Um, but yeah, those were some of the experiences that I think really kind of led me to being, um, you know, very sort of involved in the social entrepreneurship space. Um, and, you know, through a lot of the internships that I did, uh, you know, in in Palestine, for example, uh, or uh, in Nigeria or other places, you know, you could kind of like see that you know, the work that you would do from a, in a private sector organization had amazing social impacts um, for you know regular, average, everyday people. And so I think just trying to combine the ability of um, you know capitalism to lift people out of poverty with wanting to do that in a way that actually, um, you know, socially conscious was a real driving variable for all of that.
2: Okay. That sounds really interesting. That's a very, I guess I'm not personally familiar with the whole concept of social entrepreneurship. So I wanted to get your take on it just to get an idea. So it's about, if Mm -hmm. I've understood correctly, it's about combining, you know, I guess, capitalism and or businesses that have the ability to, or the business models and the resources to make impact on a, on a large scale in like whatever, whatever countries or whatever, you know, situations.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, you know, if you look at also just like how business has evolved over time, you know, I think probably in the 1980s, 1990s, there was this like philosophy that like, you know, greed is good. And, you know, the sole responsibility of companies was to their shareholders, right? So just to make more profits. Exactly. And I think increasingly, there's a realization that companies, uh, have a social responsibility because, you know, they benefit from a lot of the, you know, the global commons, right? Things like the environment, for example, right? Uh, benefit companies, but they don't usually pay for those things. And so it's important for companies to be good social citizens. Um, and for us to not necessarily see making money and capitalism as being opposed to this goal of trying to actually improve, um, you know, the world from a social standpoint, so I think exactly what you've described is uh, is correct. It's really about just leveraging capitalism as a system and as uh, a process and a set of tools, um, but not purely to get rich, but also to to give back and to help um, you know the environment or help other people or help animals, you know. Uh, and sometimes you know, let's not be simple simple about this. Like sometimes those things do come into conflict with each other. Um, but the whole movement is really driven by. An effort to try to make those things uh, complementary,
2: complementary to each other. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good point, and it's really interesting how you describe that. The perception, I guess, of capitalism for quite some time, maybe especially like you said back in the day, with all about it's all about you know getting rich at at any cost, and now it's kind of like no, it's we have to like take that cost onto ourselves and give back and help other people, you know, come out of poverty or you know improve their financial status in any, you know, any country or whatever the whatever the cause might be for.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also just this realization of like short term versus long term thinking. Right. Because I'm oftentimes if you're trying to be profitable in the short term, it may make sense to not, you know, care about human rights or, you know, the welfare of, you know, animals or people's jobs or the environment but again that is a very short term thing right uh, i think a very concrete example of this would be like you know uh lumber right the lumber industry is basically chopping down trees in forest you could chop down all the trees in the forest you know within the span of a month if if you could and you'd make a ton of money selling all of you know the the wood from that but then you don't have any more trees to you know like create new trees right and so (laughs) it is very short-term thinking so i think that's just like one example of you know this realization that like for long-term sustainability um we do have to think about a lot of these like social environmental um you know human factors yeah
2: do you think the biggest issue with um the difference between short-term and long-term because just as naturally as people we want to see the results you know as soon as possible because if i do have a short-term goal i do it the next week i can see the result of my work okay i i you know i feel good i feel accomplished i feel validated but a lot of these long-term things especially with social entrepreneurship probably take could be like five-year projects ten-year projects so for you to have the patience and still keep that mindset to be working towards that can be quite challenging i think for a lot of people oh
1: 100 you know i i think that's a There's a a variety of different like dynamics that are going into, um, you know, explaining that. And I think you've hit one of them on the head, right? Which is just human nature likes to see, you know, short-term gains. And we can see this even in like just the way that individual people live their lives. Right. Uh, I know in the United States, for example, I think most families are actually like in debt. Right. And, you know, part of the reason I think is this culture of like people want things, like now, but they don't necessarily think about like long-term, right? So you'll take out lots of credit card debt to buy, you know, I don't know, new new car or something. And uh, yeah. then you don't think about how you're going to sustain that. So I think that's absolutely one, one aspect of it. And I think another aspect of it as well is that a lot of the, um, like the systems that we have in place to measure, um, you know, success or to incentivize, um, you know, companies, are still based on very like uh, old school uh, metrics. Right. So, for example, you know, even though we may talk about how companies, you know, should have a social aspect to their mission. uh, At the end of the day, the actual financial uh, mechanism that's incentivizing them is, you know, to see the the stock price increase for the shareholders. Um, And so, you know, until we really see some changes to those systems of like measurement and incentives, uh, I I think, you know, a piece of that puzzle is going to really be missing to to drive forward social change.
2: Yeah. I think you mentioned a really good point that that incentive is a, a crucial part you know in actually making those changes and for companies to start taking action and think long term about these kind of things because like we said you know they're not getting that financial you know reward that's gonna make my shareholder happy I ha- this is kind of it's a different way to like I have to play this I have to think about it in a completely different way but something you mentioned in uh, your experience over the last couple of years and working as a social entrepreneur have you seen that change? Has there been, have you seen a shift in that movement and the way that people are thinking nowadays, especially in 2020, or is it, are we still being held back a bit by the, the old ways that you mentioned?
1: Mm. Uh, well, I guess one thing I would just, uh, as point of clarification, I wouldn't uh, call myself a social entrepreneur. Okay. Uh, I wish I were, <laughs> but uh, I did work with a lot of social entrepreneurs. So um, my core uh, sort of field of expertise is called community management Uh, And so I've worked with communities of social entrepreneurs at Singularity University and also at the World Economic Forum. Uh, So just wanted to sort of clarify that. Um, But, you know, in terms of has there been a shift, uh, it's an interesting question. I think there's definitely been a lot of focus on the field, um, but the field is also really evolving, you know. Um, There's also been, you know, critical voices about, you know, certain aspects of uh, social entrepreneurship. And I, I guess... One thing that I would, one observation that I would have um, is that I think the concept of social entrepreneurship has had a lot of um, appeal, right? This idea that you can have like profitability and scalable impact at the same time from a social level. Um, And I think one of the things that I've observed is that, you know, there are some social entrepreneurs that are, you know, combining those two things. but, But oftentimes I think, social entrepreneurship still um, runs into problems of scale, right? It's okay. like, how do you do it on like a large level? And so you see a lot of like smaller grassroots type organizations that are having good impact, but you know, the, the path to like going big with that is really difficult. And I think that just underlines the fact that like, you know, the problem of like, how do we have more social impact in the world? Um, it's not, the solution is not um, based on just one, uh, sort of, you know, uh, idea, and so we do still actually need like regular private sector businesses to be involved, right? If you if you look at, um, you know, like China for example, China pulled f- like forty million people out of poverty over the span of like a couple of decades, and they didn't necessarily do it with social entrepreneurship, right? They did it with like regular entrepreneurship and just like regular private sector development, and we've seen that in a lot of countries. So I think that there is still value to like regular, you know, private sector business, um, that wants to make money. I think what you now see is that there is kind of like a middle ground, right? It's not only about like private sector development and it's not only about social entrepreneurship, but there's this kind of in between of social intrapreneurship, which is basically people within large companies trying to do things within their big business, right? Whether it's Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble or any one of these big guys, but doing something within your existing large multinational corporation to have a social impact and to do things in a better way. Yeah.
2: Coming to your point about, uh, because you spoke about a couple of uh, companies or social entrepreneurs who actually are being able to like make a change, but it's on a small scale. They're not being able to like scale that to have a larger impact on like, you know, a country, for example. Is the issue that there's, it's a lack of support for them to get to that scale, or is there just too many barriers that you know from and like like we're talking about? This is not a it's not a one idea kind of thing. It's a complex issue. It's you know there's not a one solution mm. that's going to solve this thing. So, what are the some of the things that you think are blocking you know uh, the small ones from actually being able to scale to make a large change?
1: Yeah, uh, I think one of the biggest variables is financing um, because if you think about you know financing is kind of like the oil for a company, right? Like it keeps it greases the wheels, it keeps it running, it gives it one of the key resources it needs to actually grow. Um, and when it comes to social uh, businesses, you know the profit margins or like the business case is not—it's usually not as like attractive as like a regular. Private sector company, and again, I'm simplifying a little bit, right? There's there's private sector companies that also are not like great investments. So I'm not saying (laughs) private sector companies are like unilaterally great, but I think a lot of times, like with social um, businesses, they their aim is to make some profit, but you know, it's not going to be a huge profit to the point where it's attractive for um, you know an investor to make money. And so I think it again comes down to like the incentive issue, right? So if you're a social business and your primary business case or your primary case to an investor to give you their money is based is based on um, you know a not losing their capital but you know trading off not making so much money because you care about the social impact if that's kind of the the reason for investing um, you're asking the investor basically to um, you know uh, there's an opportunity cost right that they're not earning more money with that capital they might be seeing, you know, more kids are educated, or you know, sanitation in you know certain areas improving, um, but they have to make that choice, that trade-off. And so I think that is one of the variables that um, you know hinders scale is just like the pool of people, sadly, who are willing to trade making money for like social gain is not as high as the number of people who are willing to put their capital into projects where they can grow their money at a faster rate
2: yeah and get a return so the cause or the cause of these businesses outweighs the desire for profit like like you said they do want to make it's not that they don't want to make money but from an investor perspective if i invest let's say a hundred thousand now but you're not making that much profit it's going to take me what five ten years to get that hundred maybe my just my money back without my on top that i'm looking forward to get from an investment
1: that's right that's right and again like you know I, I'm talking in generalities sure, I'm sure. sure there is some social business out there that has fantastic profit margins but I think for a lot of them this is kind of the the struggle right yeah. is that there is still somehow this trade-off between social impact and uh, profitability yeah
2: I wanted to come on to, uh, because you mentioned you were the Director of Community Management at Singularity, but that's also the work that you were doing actually at the World Economic Forum too. So, And that's something I'm really, really curious about. So why don't you take us through the journey of how did you get to the World Economic Forum and how is that experience? And we can take it from there.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I, I went to the World Economic Forum in 2014 um you know i got there through a typical standard recruitment process but i I guess like what was um what was sort of the connecting point for me is that a lot of the experiences i had had uh, especially in the middle east and north africa region um were really helpful because the position that i initially um, uh, worked in there had to do with uh, managing a community of leaders called the young global leaders um, in the middle east north africa and then also in uh, south asia so A lot of the experience that I had in in this region, uh, plus the fact that I was somewhat familiar with, you know, South Asian culture, as my family's from there, (laughs) I think it really sort of helped me to, um, you know, be successful uh, in that position. But yeah, basically, I went to the World Economic Forum in 2014. Uh, I was there for three and a half years. And so over the course of my time there, um, I did a variety of different things. So from a regional perspective, I eventually... Um, sort of shifted from the Middle East and uh, South Asia to working on our um, uh, overall Asia portfolio, so uh, including East Asia and Southeast Asia. And then in terms of the community management side, initially I was managing the uh, Young Global Leaders community. Yeah, so uh, over time I ended up uh, working on our Asia portfolio as well. Um, I also worked with three different communities um, over the course of my career. So initially I was working for the Young Global Leaders community, um, and that's a community of um, leaders who are generally between like 30 to 40 years old uh, when they're selected. Um, but the other really interesting attribute is like these are also people who at that age are also like CEOs or ministers or, you know, presidents. So they're kind of like your C-suite, like senior level um, leaders in different organizations, but in their 30s, which is, you know, typically you find people who are in their 60s and yeah, in those types of exactly. positions. Um, so I worked with the Young Global Leaders, and then over time I uh, also worked with the Schwab Foundation, uh, which is a community of social entrepreneurs, uh, and also um, a final community called the Global Shapers community. Uh, the Global Shapers is basically um, younger people who are between like twenty to thirty years old. So these are like young up-and-coming, um, you know, change makers. Um, they're set up in like a network of um, chapters called hubs uh, in different cities around the world, and. Their mission is to do um, projects together on a local level to have some kind of a social impact.
2: Okay. That's really interesting that the young global leaders were in that age range, age range sorry, because in my mind, I'm like, oh, young. So I'm like, these guys are 18 to 25. <laughs> like that That was in my head. I'm like 30 to 40. I'm like, I'm about to be 30, bro. I'm not that young. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's really cool. So uh, I also saw that you were part of the... Um, like that you're also involved in the global Glo- global leadership uh, fellow program so what was what was that all yeah. about cuz i saw you participated in it and got a couple of degrees yeah. from that as well so what's that and what was it what's the yeah. end of that program
1: uh, So, it's a really really cool program super special life experience one of the most amazing things i've ever had uh, the opportunity to be a part of basically uh, it's a a program that's sponsored by the world economic forum uh, that includes um, like professional development and executive education uh, at a variety of different universities. So it, it was like part and parcel of like the the job at the World Economic Forum. So basically every year we would spend around six weeks uh, in different countries, different universities. Um, and the theme that we were learning about was global leadership. So we had some modules that were talking about, you know, uh, team dynamics and, you know, how how you sort of um, yeah, how to really understand team dynamics and, you know, employ different skills to manage team dynamics. Um, there were other sessions that were um, more kind of uh, inward focus, so more about like purpose and kind of your personal mission. And then we had other ones that were focusing on things like, um, you know, persuasion or, um, you know, the role of technology in leadership. So it was really kind of like a holistic um, education uh, in global leadership. Um, and some of the universities that we had the opportunity to go to were, you know, like really great, like world-class institutions, um, Columbia, um, university of Pennsylvania, um, INSEAD in France, uh, London business school. Um, yeah, so it was just really fantastic, uh, experience. And a lot of the learning methodologies were also just very, very dynamic. I think the one that really stands out is they actually took us to the mountains in the Swiss Alps and we did a variety of different like challenges in the mountains. Um, with with teams, and the whole purpose was to like engineer conflict with your team while you were doing a different task. Oh wow! Uh, and then you kind of like debrief that and like take learnings and like reapply them in the next activity. So just very you know very dynamic uh, sort of learning methodology.
2: That sounds like such a cool experience. That sounds really really interesting, and I really like how they took you through so many different aspects of like global leadership, like things like technology and. You know all these those other factors because in my mind, you know, I guess global leadership and leadership are two different things or are they the same thing? I'm not I'm not sure. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of elements of leadership, whether globally or uh, you know domestically, are are still the same. I think with global leadership, maybe the additional element you want to think about is kind of like intercultural leadership. Right. And so um, I think one of the best examples of this was we had a a module uh, in in China at the China Europe uh, International Business School, uh, which is in Shanghai. And, you know, we learned specifically about, you know, business in the Chinese context and, you know, differences in like communication styles or things like that. So, yeah, I think, you know, global leadership is basically a regular leadership, but layered onto it some additional skills to kind of understand uh, people who come from a different culture with, you know, maybe different attitudes, you know, uh, work behaviors or values. Yeah. Um, yeah. things like so that. So
2: that program, the, the global, um, uh, leadership fellow program was that, did you do that before you were working at the world economic forum or was that as you were working uh, at the same time that you were working there?
1: It's at the same time. So, um, the way it worked was every year, um, they would select, um, 30 people. So you'd have like your regular job at the World Economic Forum, but um, you know 30 people uh, would also um, be selected to participate in this Global Leadership Fellows program. Um, so it was concurrent. So you'd work, you do your day job, but um, you know for six weeks of the year, and those six weeks were kind of like interspersed throughout the year. Um, you, you'd go off to a different university to to learn different things.
2: And how did that play into, um, I guess, your your role at the World Economic Forum? Because you mentioned that you were uh, you're the community you were the head of Asia for community social mm-hmm. engagement, I believe. So I wanted to yeah. ask you and get your thoughts about what is social engagement? What is community management? Like, how would you how would yeah. you describe that? Yeah. Because I don't think that's a term that many yeah. people relate to or understand.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. <clears throat> so, um, you know, c- community management uh, is is a new field, actually. And it's, uh, it's a field that's evolving. So I think there are like multiple um, takes on what that is. Uh, I know for some people, community management is seen more of as like, um, you know, kind of like digital engagement in social media. For other people, it's more about, you know, how do you have um like followers for a brand who help you to market um so there's different like perspectives the perspective um of community management in in our context at the world economic forum um it was elements of those but I, it was more actually about um impact and how do you leverage relationships and connections to build impact right so essentially as a community manager what i was doing is um i oversaw like a a network of probably several hundred or in some cases, thousands um, of leaders in different regions around the world. And the fundamental thing that you're trying to do as a community manager is to find ways that the people in that network can um, connect and collaborate in such a way that they can create incremental value um, through those relationships with each other. right? So you might have one person in the community who, let's go back to our investment, uh, just very simply. Right, One person is like an investor. Somebody else has, uh, is trying to, I don't know, build uh, toilets to improve sanitation in rural India, right? Those two people have um, certain assets and resources that the other needs, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. The investor might be looking for a place to put their money to, I don't know, to, let's say, earn a little bit of return. And that person may have a business model that's having social impact that's, you know, earning money, but they need to actually scale and want to like do this in another village. Right? So those people may not know each other, but they're part of the same network, the same community. And so what can, what we're, what can we do as community managers to help make sure that those people know each other, that they are having the right conversations to be able to discover those opportunities to, you know, help each other. Uh, And what are we doing to build a culture? Um, that is incentivizing people to give back and to help each other. Yeah, that that's fundamentally what we were trying to do.
2: Okay, that's really really interesting. But that must be also I can imagine being responsible for so many people, like hundreds you said, or like potentially even thousands of leaders, and across so many different cultures and so many different backgrounds, and with who each have their own you know perceptions and outlooks to come. So. You'd connect them, but were you also responsible yourself for like managing that relationship to make sure like the, the people that are being connected are, I guess, acting in the right way? I don't know what the exact term is, but, you know, like facilitating yeah, what, like, what yeah, you're trying to do. Yeah,
1: yeah you know, um, so, so yes to both of those. I think in terms of like how do you manage people towards impact? It's a really interesting uh, challenge, right? Because in a way, you are kind of like the leader of this tribe, But at the same time, you don't actually have any formal, like, authority, right? This is not like a boss versus, like, employee relationship where you can, like, tell people to do something. It's not like a hierarchy. And in any case, a lot of, yeah, it's not a hierarchy. And furthermore, like, you know, the caliber of people in this community, you know, are already, like, very accomplished, right? Some of them are, you know, ministers in countries or, like, you know, members of royal families or, you know, CEOs. So it it's not a relationship where you can necessarily like manage people as if it was, you know, a a business. So what's unique about that then is that you're actually trying to find all these softer tools, right. To have influence. Um, you know, how do I motivate somebody to want to collaborate and to have an impact, right? How do I help to create uh, a culture that is incentivizing people to, um, you know, to act and take action in the ways that, you know, we find desirable. And so those were some of the really interesting, um, you know, challenges and learnings I had. And and I think one of the most fascinating aspects about that is that that's a very multidisciplinary uh, uh, problem, not problem, like uh, action sure. right? yeah, that yeah. you have to try to do, because you're, you're you're using like little elements of psychology, you're using elements of strategy, branding. Um, you know, uh, sort of emotional intelligence. Like, there's a lot really kind of there that you're trying to use all these like indirect ways to try to mobilize people, uh, to to deliver towards a certain outcome. Yeah,
2: I actually read uh your article about eight ways to unlock the power of a community, and the other one you wrote about the ROI about of community, which I thought were really really interesting. So, yeah. let's get to the eight ways to unlock the power of community out of all the things that you talked about there was you know to create and encourage shared experiences common values storytelling out of all the ones that you listed if you can you know remember them which one from your experience did you find was I guess Mm -hmm. the most important or maybe the top two or three that seems those are like Mm -hmm. applicable across you know across the board
1: yeah yeah um that's a fantastic question Uh, I think there's kind of multiple, so I'm not, I'm not going to just pick one. There's a couple of really (laughs) important, I won't go through all eight. Uh, people can read the article (laughs) later if they want, but I think the sort of like the, the core foundational aspect of it is to have shared purpose, right? Um, shared purpose. And I would say shared values, right? The purpose is about having kind of like common goal and the values is about having, um, you know, a shared set of, um, sort of behaviors, um, Uh, you know, philosophy that's kind of guiding us towards that purpose, right? So that's kind of the core. I think once the core is in place, um, the other stuff is a little bit easier to do, right? Um, And so I think the second element that I would say is really powerful uh, is um, through the shared experience. Um, You know, you'll often find that people are bonded the most strongly when they go through something challenging together and they overcome it together right and sometimes that happens kind of like naturally um you know you could think of the example of like uh, like immigrants actually right like anybody who's been an immigrant has probably you know gone through a lot of hardship you know starting over again in life in a different place that they don't know and they're overcoming all these challenges of figuring things out and so you know a lot of immigrants especially when they're from the same community um, you know, are very closely kind of bonded through that shared experience. So, yeah, I think that's a really important one. Um, and then I think the other one that I would highlight, uh, is culture. Um, yeah, just like, how do you create cultures that sort of celebrate, um, you know, the types of, uh, actions that you want to see in a community, right? How do you tell stories that help to kind of reinforce that culture and motivate people, you know, kind of by themselves. To want to uh, attain a goal without necessarily having something in it for them those are th- I think, are some of the really powerful tools um yeah, yeah in sort of mobilizing people towards action i
2: think one of the, the one that you mentioned that i i totally resonate with which is the core which is the your why basically you know why are we here yeah why are we yeah. a community what are we all trying to achieve because the why gives the purpose so when all and like you said creating the culture kind of and telling the right stories kind of furthers that purpose and that story but we mm-hmm. need that core as our like kind of like our guiding light to see this is where we're going so if anytime we do a go off balance which happens this is life we know why we're here and we know what we're doing so we can come back to it and you know move forward
1: yeah hundred percent hundred percent and you know it's interesting as since we're here in the uae like i think the uae actually does a really interesting and great job of this right Right. So if you talk about that core of like the purpose and values, right. I think it was last year, the theme was all about kind of tolerance, right. Yep. Uh, like interreligious pluralism and all of that. Right. And so they're kind of like building these like really strong set of like values. And then there's this whole like branding campaign around like, make it happen. is kind of like the new slogan. Right. Yep. And so that's kind of trying to build a culture, right. Of like, you know, this is a place where like, you know, we can do anything we can, you know, make, you know, dreams come true. And so it's interesting. And it's really, what's, I think, just so fascinating about this discipline is that it applies, like, in anything you do, right? You can be a country trying to build a sense of, like, patriotism, you know, in your citizenry. You could be, um, you know, a company, you know, trying to get your employees to, you know, work their hardest for something. You could be, like, a family who's trying to, like, foster, like, family pride in, like, their heritage. So, you know, community management is really, it's actually all around us all the time. And I th- i think sometimes it happens without people actually knowing that yeah, you know, yeah. that's what's going on.
2: What would you say about the that saying that culture is, I think it's culture eats strategy for breakfast. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. There've been studies on this. Actually, Google did a study a few years ago to find out what makes the perfect team. And uh, what they found, so they had like one team where Uh, I think the team was like very organized, like they had like, you know, uh, clear strategies in place, but like the team didn't really like share a lot of common values. And then you had like team B, uh, in their study, which basically, you know, had common values, but they weren't like as organized. Like they didn't have like a game plan that they stuck to, you know, the meetings that they had were often like kind of chaotic, but like everybody was kind of like on the same page, like, you know in terms of the values of how they interacted with each other, it was kind of on the same page. And they found that team B was actually more successful at, you know, getting the result. And so I think, you know, the conclusion is basically supporting that, that statement, right? That culture is actually so much more powerful than strategy.
2: Yeah. Because I guess culture is what was, was going to carry you through, you know, in the long term, you know, and that coming back to what yeah. you said about shared values and shared purpose, you know, that's always going to out be strategy. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And and you know something else about that, um, you know, strategy. As anybody who's been like a venture capitalist or who's been an entrepreneur will will tell you, you know, strategy sometimes changes, right? You have like business plans, for example, but the business plan almost never, like, it's almost never exactly, um, you know, what you do in reality because like things change, right? Or you learn stuff along the way, and so you know that's where culture kind of comes in, right? Because culture is. Is not about like following a fixed set of like rules, right, or a fixed plan. It's about how do you adapt when you know circumstances change, right? How do you react to new information, and that's why you know culture is really uh, the key.
2: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I wanted to come back to uh, your the community management part because I was asking myself, I was trying to figure out, I'm like, what's the biggest challenge that people typically face when you're building a community? Is it the cultural differences? Is it not having a clear, you know, vision and purpose? Because mm. you could start something, but how do, you, how do you set it up so this is something that's going to last and have a lasting incha- impact, mm. you know, on whatever the initiative that you're trying to accomplish?
1: Yeah. I think, I think the key thing is vision, right? And like goals, like what are we trying to accomplish? I always say that there's, a, there's actually a difference between uh, a network and a community, right? So a network is... Okay. A group of people that you know are they're part of some you know uh, they're part of some like group, uh, but they don't necessarily have like a common goal or objective, right? Community is basically like when a network is layered with um, you know a common vision, common purpose, uh, connections between the members uh, and values. That's really when you get uh, a community, Um, and so I think that's really an important um yeah an important distinction um yeah between those two things yeah
2: i've actually never heard someone put it in that way before but you're so right about the difference between a network and a community because i think sometimes you can think they're the same thing but based on what you're saying is that i feel with the community there's a not just a shared value there's also an emotional attachment to it you know, cause you can mm. like, for example, like a LinkedIn network is a network of people that you know, or that you have connections with, but doesn't, you're not part of a community. There's not, there's not, that yeah. not, is not, part of, It's not a community for you. It's a different thing.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, you know, I think a good measure of like when you actually have a functional community is like, can you ask, or do you feel comfortable asking other people in the community for help? Right. So you probably have like a lot of LinkedIn connections you know, some of them might be like people that you actually know, right? You went to college with them or you work with them and let's say you're applying for a job, like you will feel comfortable pinging that person and say, Hey, like I'm applying for a job at this company. I see you have a contact. Can you help me with the intro? And then there's other, probably other people on your LinkedIn network that you maybe never know, like they somehow added you and you accepted, <laughs> <For> <laughs> um, sure. but like, cause they seemed like they worked at a good company, but you don't know who they are, True. right? And if you reach out to that person. You probably are not gonna, you know, uh, hear back. So, yeah I think that's a really you know great example yeah. of like the difference between the two
2: yeah yeah uh, I wanted to ask you about I wanted to come back to your role at the World Economic Forum because we spoke about in the beginning how you lived in multiple countries and so on, so did how did all that experience of living across so many different cultures and stuff help you when you were managing or like being the head of Asia and the World economic Forum because mm. I think all that experience and Experiencing different cultures must have had a give you, I guess, an advantage when it came to you know managing that such a large community of different people.
1: Yeah, yeah, Um, you know, obviously from the perspective of just like having dealt with a lot of different people from different cultures and you know, sort of understanding, um, you know, just like different ways of thinking and working. That's really useful. I think the other thing is just you know, you're working with so much variety of like people and, you know, also like the, the fields that they work in, the industries they work in, the issues that they're working on. And so having worked, you know, in different places, also like in a variety of discipl- a variety of different disciplines um, it helps you to be able to like know a lot of things, um, a lot of little things about a lot of different topics. And that, that variety I think just helps you to have like better conversations. It helps you to kind of understand people's needs a little bit better um you know and it also helps when, when you occasionally have like um you know conflict or between like members or things like that or you know a global event is you know having an effect somewhere like you kind of have some context for like what's going on
2: yeah now that makes that that's a really good point because you get i guess a more holistic overview of just people of different cultures and it's not because you could read about you know what are what's this culture like what's that culture like and then adapt your strategy to that but when you live there and experience it like you mentioned it's those little things those little things that make mm-hmm. all the difference between you understanding and making it that deeper connection with that person from you know whatever culture that's right from. yeah
1: that's right yeah and i think that experience helped a lot you know like when especially like you know if i'm working in the asia region like i used to live in japan for a little bit so if i have like a japanese member know, being able to talk about kind of coming back to shared experiences, right, which I think are a great way to bond uh, with people, like you you have that, right. And, you know, when you've lived in other places, you know, if you lived in Palestine or Jordan, you know, a lot of people in the community also have connections to those places. Or, you know, if I've worked in a certain industry where somebody works, it's just it helps to really establish, um, you know, trust, I think, and credibility uh, a lot faster when you have some of those commonalities with people.
2: So do you believe that shared experiences are i guess crucial in building trust across large communities is that what the key would be or are there other aspects that might you know need to be taken into consideration
1: there's a lot of things but you I mean, shared experience i think is a pretty big one i wouldn't i wouldn't say that you know in the absence of that like it's not possible but you know just from personal experience i think that is like one of the strongest ones And sometimes, you know, that happens like organically, right? Like you may have two members that, I don't know, they're both like, let's say they're both uh, entrepreneurs who failed in a previous business, right? So they'll bond because they have that shared experience. Other times as a community manager, that shared experience is a lot less obvious, or, you know, maybe it doesn't necessarily exist. And so you're trying to actually create, you know, opportunities for that to emerge, right? And that can be something as simple as, um, you know, a conference where you have some really unique experiences that people go through together, right? Um, Another really great one is we used to have an annual um, like cross country ski marathon at the World Economic Forum. A lot of our community members would take part, right? And you could have somebody who was working in cryptocurrency in Mongolia and somebody who worked at like a healthcare, you know, nonprofit organization, totally different people. But by going through like, you know, that ski marathon together at the end of it, they're like, you know, super tight. So, you know, we we also can like do things like that, right. To create like memorable experiences for people that they otherwise would not have had, uh, and those type of things, you know, bond people. Yeah,
2: no, I think that's a, that's a really, really good point that shared experiences, like when you, when, and using that example, I think puts it into perspective that looking back, you might've come to that event. We don't know each other, completely different backgrounds, completely different experiences. But after we go through that together, now we have a shared memory and a, hopefully a positive memory. Yeah. And that's what's going to, I guess, start the relationship and that's what will carry it forward.
1: 100 percent. And, you know, I think another like strategy I found really useful um, in sort of creating um, trust has been like creating ways that uh, incentivize people to be vulnerable. Right. Um, so, for example, the, the Global Leadership Fellows Program that I was a part of, we had these little coaching groups um, uh, with other people who are part of the program. And I remember the first coaching group, it was like me and four or five other people. And most of them, I, like, I knew who they were, but like, I didn't really know them that well. Like, I, didn't, like, I, I knew their job, I knew their name, I knew what they looked like. But that was like very superficial. But uh, we had a, um, a module at this university in France called INSEAD, um, where they basically created this activity, which um, it was kind of sneaky. They kind of forced people to have to be vulnerable. Okay. okay. <laughs> so they, they, what they did is basically like they had us like draw out uh, like uh, our life, like with like pictures and stuff. And uh, people had to guess like what the, the images that we drew like meant. And so, you know, sometimes people would get it wrong. And so like when people get wrong, what you're trying to draw about your life, like you want to correct them, right? And so when when you go to correct them, you're actually being more vulnerable than you probably would have if it was just left left up your, your own devices, you're asked to like talk about like your, you know, your, your upbringing and your fears and your worries and your hopes and your dreams and everything. Um, but yeah, so through like activities like that or, you know, other kinds, you can engineer people uh, or engineer situations where people, um, you know, push themselves out of their comfort zone. um, Push themselves like, put themselves out there a little bit more. And that vulnerability I found just really connects people, right? And so my coaching group and I like, today we're like so close, like we're still in touch. Half of us, you know, don't work at the World Economic Forum anymore. But uh, those bonds will, you know, live for a lifetime. And it's because you know, we've had those experiences where we got to the core of who each other were beyond just the very surface level.
2: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm always a huge, huge advocate of vulnerability. Um And I, I believe, uh, I learned this from a friend of mine because I remember we, we we used to work together and on the first day that I joined the company, he's like, he came up to me, he's like, hey man, how you doing? I'm like, yeah, all good, nice to meet you. He's like, let's go for a, let's go for a walk. I'm like, okay. Went for mm. a walk and he shared with me so much about himself and I had just met this guy and I asked him like now like, f- for fast forward a couple of years I were talking about it recently and I'm like why did you why were you how were you so vulnerable and open like so early with like a new person you know I thought that was quite surprising because I- I'm not against vulnerability but maybe after some yeah. time and he's like the way to encourage other people to be vulnerable is I have to first be vulnerable myself and then people yes. will be willing to yes. know share with me so that's something that I try to within reason, try to do myself as well. And it comes to your point that, you know, developing those close relationships with people.
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, people like you did can kind of take the initiative to do that on their own. Um, And I think sometimes it's harder for people to, to be able to do that. And I think that's really where, you know, human resource departments and companies or, you know, community managers or CEOs, they can try to create an environment or, you know, put in place certain, um, you know, mechanisms or activities or whatever you want to call it, that's going to kind of like create the circumstances where people can kind of do that, right, or where they're kind of like uh, nudged to do those things. Um, but yeah, you know, trust. There's actually uh, there's a, there's a book I read once. It was basically called The Speed of Trust. Oh, interesting. It was basically talking about how when you when you have trust in organizations, you can do things uh, faster and cheaper, right? And it's this was of course written from like a business perspective. But it, it's really true, right? Um, I could think of examples where, you know, I needed something from a different department in, like, my job at the World Economic Forum. One of the people in that department happened to be one of my coaching group, you know, uh, colleagues. And so because, like, you know, we had trust, we had a relationship, we knew each other, it was a lot easier for me to get things done, right? I could just reach out to that person because, like, they knew me, they would do things, right? Yeah. If they didn't know me, then it would probably go into like, you know, a queue and, you know, it would be a little bit slower. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's trust in any kind of organization, I think, just helps it to achieve its goals um, a, lot, a lot easier. Yeah,
2: you're a lot more productive when you don't have all those, I guess, social barriers like of in your example, like I right. said, this guy's in a different department. I don't know him. He probably has other people that he right. has relationships with that are going to be ahead of the needs that I need, you know, from him. So I totally agree with that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah,
2: it makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of companies that spend so much money on, like, you know, compliance and regulation yep. and, right, and, like, quality control. And a lot of it is, like, because there isn't trust, right? And some of that we still need, right? There's not like we can live in a world where there's no, like, <laughs> checks on, yeah. you know, what people are doing. But, you know, obviously, if you were able to, like, trust people more, it would, like, leave a lot more time to do, like, value-added activities and a lot less time allocated towards like uh, risk management type stuff. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. I totally, totally agree with you. I think there should be a higher emphasis on the other side, not necessarily, you know, all these things. But like you said, they are needed. We're not saying they're not, but just yeah, a little shift of focus totally. might, be, might be better. Um, I wanted to come back to, uh, so while you're working at the Economic Forum, you, uh, you managed a couple of initiatives, if I'm not mistaken. You know, things like development, finance, girls' education, healthcare, energy, rural rural development. So I was thinking, I'm like, okay, it's quite a diverse range of initiatives. And (laughs) quite uh, like each one comes in my head, came with like 10 million challenges I could think of. But when you look back now, which initiative that you led were you most proud of and why?
1: Uh, The one that comes to mind was uh, an initiative of our uh, global shapers community uh, in South Asia. It's called Trillionaire. Okay. Uh, So like tree as in like a plant tree and Illionaire as in like millionaire. So they combined them. Um, Basically, it was like a project uh, to like plant as many trees as possible uh, across the South Asian region. And so we had, I think, almost every single uh, chapter uh, within the region was participating. And, um, you know, basically it was very simple. The mission was to like plant trees in your local community. uh, And we kind of made a little competition out of it. Uh, so like every, every month we would kind of like see, you know, which chapter has planted the most. And then we'd have like a session where people could kind of share best practices or challenges or ideas to help each other. So it was competitive, but also like collaborative. Um, and when I left, it was still ongoing. I don't know where it is, uh, right now, but, uh, but yeah, so there were tons of, you know, cities all over the region that were, um, you know, getting greened if you will, uh, through that initiative. And yeah, we had some really cool ways to just like, you know, it was a very simple thing to measure as well. I think measurement is another important thing in community management. So um, yeah, it was pretty easy to, you know, create, uh, yeah, create kind of like a a regional uh, project out of it. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, to tie this back to the discussion earlier about strategies for community building, you know, one of the things I think is like, we we talked about shared purpose, right? And so, you're giving all these different, like, chapters, which all have, like, different situations locally, um, you know, different cultures, different, you know, situations. You're still giving them this, like, shared purpose to work towards. Um, And on top of it, you know, Trillionaire, it's it's a great brand. It's pretty catchy. (laughs) It (laughs) it also helps to build this kind of, like, emotional attachment to this, like, specific initiatives uh, brand. So that's one that really kind of sticks out to me. Yeah,
2: that's awesome. That sounds like a really, really cool project. And it's, like you said, it's simple. And a really interesting point that you mentioned is it's quite, it's very measurable. You know, it's, you know, number right. of trees and, you know, it's pretty straightforward. So uh, I wanted, to, uh, we were talking about uh, getting the ROI of community and how that's quite a difficult thing because the way you put it, it's like the air around us, it's intangible. You know, it's very hard to, it's not like the tree example that we were talking about that you can directly see, okay, it's a metric, it's measurable. We get the value so you talked about things like value alignment purpose engagement impact and social ties and relationships so in your opinion are there which of those that could you look at and see that that would you know maybe give you the best indication not Mm -hmm. necessarily a a metric Mm -hmm. but like an indication of the value of the community and the benefits that are coming out of this community
1: Yeah. yeah yeah Uh, so it would have to be impact, right? Because that's ultimately what it's about, right? If if we're saying that a community has like a common purpose, um, it has value when it's successfully like, you know, achieving that purpose. Um, uh, and as a result, it's harder to measure, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible to measure it. Um, and I think that's really what good community managers um, have to do. And it's something that we we did in the context of, you know, some of those communities um, that I talked about. Um, but you really need to think about, you know, how do you measure the, the end result? And if the end result is harder to measure, how do you at least measure the the inputs, right? The, the variables that lead to that.
2: Uh, going into that, yeah.
1: Exactly, right? So, for example... Um, you know, actually, the World Economic Forum generally, like their kind of model of change is a little bit more indirect, right? It's not the type of organization where everything is, you know, it's, it's not like they're making, you know, hammers or widgets of some kind or another. So oftentimes, like the impact is, um, you know, advocacy. It's about, you know, putting items on the agenda for you know, different you know, decision makers. Those type of things take a very long time to see the impact. But what you can do is you can measure the uh, inputs, right? So to make this very like concrete, like if we're talking about a community that has a very um, you know, abstract end goal, how can you measure um, values, right? You could at least find out if people know what the values are, right? If values are understood, that's kind of the first stage of, um, you know, people actually like exhibiting them, right? It's not perfect, yeah, yeah. but like, that's something very easy, easy that you can measure. In terms of like uh, relationships and connections, right? You can easily um, measure how many people, any given individual in the group knows, right? Um, And then there's actually within, uh, there's a field called like social network analysis. So it's not talking about like Instagram, Facebook, not that, but like network in terms of like a group of people who are connected to each other. Um, And there's a variety of different like metrics that you can use to measure the health of that, um, that community or that network of people. Um, so you can look at, and I, I'm not gonna go into depth here. There's, there's some metrics called like uh, eigenvector score, or density or connectedness. So these are things that you can also put like numbers to, to understand like how well the community is like bonded uh, to each other, mm-hmm. right? And then you might be able to easily men- like measure the number of times that people meet in that community, right? If it's a chapter-based community, how often are they having chapter meetings? Um, mm-hmm. If they're meant to do like local projects, like how many local projects are they doing? What is the length of any given project, right? Um, you know, how, and also you can, the final way that's really helpful is asking like members of the community themselves for feedback, right? So it may be like difficult to know if like the chapter is having an impact, but you could ask that question to the 20 members of the chapter, right? And like you can have them rank it on like a scale of one to five or something. And obviously it's subjective, but, you know, the more people that you ask, the more like statistically, um, you know, useful it is. And so if you have like 20 people who are saying that the chapter is, you know, rated five out of five, that's the highest, it's doing great. If it's like a two out of five, there's a problem. So there's a lot of ways, you know, if if you can't measure the end result, because it just takes a long time for it to happen, or it's a softer thing, measure at least the inputs that go into um into getting us there
2: yeah i think that's a really that's a really good way to like like try to get an idea of you know the value of a community and the health of a community as well and i love the point that you mentioned at the end about just ask the people in the community what's the feedback because that's you're you're getting probably the purest representation or idea from the people that are in it and trying to make that said impact in the community. So you probably don't have a better resource than those people.
1: Absolutely. hundred percent.
2: Yeah. And I noticed on some of the projects uh, that you uh, managed, you uh, implemented something or something that you use, and it seems to use it on a lot of your big projects is design thinking. And Mm, I don't know what that is. I don't know what design thinking is. So could you walk us through what is design thinking? And it seems to be quite useful for managing large scale projects. I don't know, that's the impression I got, but maybe you could just fill us all in on what is design thinking and why is it so useful? Yeah.
1: Design thinking is, uh, it, first of all, design thinking can be used in anything. It can be used in big things, it can be used in small things, it can be used in trying to solve like, you know, um, like personal problems or like, you know, national problems. Uh, but what it basically is, is it's it's a process. Um, a process to uh, solve problems in sort of novel ways, right? In different ways. Um, so the design thinking process has like a couple of parts to it. Um, the first is uh, called observation. So this is really about like understanding a problem and understanding it from uh, a place of like deep listening and empathy uh, and trying to really like scratch below the surface and understand what's at the core of a, of a problem, right? Um, you know, oftentimes when you, you know, talk to people and you're you know, trying to solve something, what you may hear is on the surface may not actually be what's like below the surface. Right. And so that's really observation is it's about trying to gather information. Um, now the, the second part of it is really around like ideating. Right. And so oftentimes when people try to solve a problem, There's a lot of, um, like, blocks that they have to solving that problem. Um, Assumptions, I think, are a really big one, right? Um, Also, sort of, like, you know, values and behaviors in, like, a collaborative setting are another one, right? How many of us have been in a meeting where you're trying to come up with an idea for something and there's, like, that one person who's like, no, 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 that won't work. You know, that won't work because of this, this, and this. (laughs) Like, everybody's... So like, just like that, that judgment, uh, having assumptions about what will and won't work, um, you know, having kind of a culture where you may not, you know, allow ideas to even like, you know, grow, uh, that often like stimmies the process of coming up with like new and out of the box uh, solutions to problems. So that second phase is really all about ideating and in design thinking, there's a variety of specific like tools or activities or methods that you can apply to get people to think differently. Uh, And it's not only for people who are like, you know, creative, you can be not creative, but like learn some of these skills um, by applying some of these tools. Um, The third part of it would be prototyping. So a big part of design thinking is about trying things in small, uh, small ways and learning uh, along the way and then refining your approach. Right. So like, I think sometimes traditionally when you're doing a project, You invest a lot of time you work for a month you roll out what you think is like the perfect product and then it goes to market and people don't like it right uh as opposed to that design thinking is about okay let's just like create one small feature let's have people try it let's get their feedback you know they may like certain things we'll keep it they may not like certain things and so we'll iterate that right and so it's this constant iteration, iteration in small steps um to lower the cost of like failure okay and also just to get the overall quality of the idea well, like to be, to be better. Um, then the final part of it is scaling. So it's like, once you have an idea, uh, you've prototyped it, you've tested it, it's working. Um, you know, how do you scale it, uh, in a way that it can reach more people. So that, that in a nutshell is what design thinking is and what the four key, uh, steps of the process are.
2: Yeah, that's really, I really like, um, what I really like about that is the, the iteration aspect like there's mm-hmm. no need to invest that much time with in something quite big because what i've learned at least you know and i think in any experience and anything you're trying to build small changes or small bits of progress over time are going to lead to big yeah. results but if you go big and invest so much time in it to fix that might double the time you're going to take right. to get to the same right. place because you haven't you know you just miss so many little things yeah, if it's a progression, it's a lot easier. So I really like that aspect of it. That's really that's really interesting. I've never heard of it before. I've never heard of that that process, but I really like it.
1: Yeah, I found it to be really transformational, and like in the work I've done in so many different things, um, you know, whether it was like designing a conference or um, you know trying to come up with like a, like an end of class celebration or like anything like you know trying to improve a process in our company, uh, it just really h- helps to like have people think in a different way and to come up with ideas that you know are just like very out of the box and that solve problems um yeah from a different perspective.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally I totally agree and that's something I'm definitely going to take a look into cuz it sounds really interesting and probably can be applicable to so many things that you know I'm not even <laughs> thinking about right now. I wanted to um Come back to your work with I. Uh, I know you've been working with uh, the not that nonprofit company, Saliya. Oh right? yeah, 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 absolutely in New York. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, your role there was to, if I'm not mistaken, facilitate discussions between the Muslim world and the West to enhance cross-cultural understanding. So yeah. that I'm like, okay, how has that experience been going? That sounds uh, really interesting.
1: Yeah, so I, I did that. Uh, it was, it's quite a long time ago that. Uh, I was a facilitator for them for i think four four semesters um basically so so for people who don't know so solia is a nonprofit organization their mission is to improve um uh intercultural understanding with a focus on like western uh intercultural understanding understanding between people in the west and people in arab and muslim worlds um there are people from europe and you know indonesia and stuff that also take part But the primary focus is uh, West versus uh, Arab and Muslim worlds, which I know are not the same thing, but uh, that's kind of what they're trying to do. Uh, And one of the key ways that they've done that uh, is through something called the Connect program. This was like their flagship program. And basically what it was, was um, like online discussions between uh, students, like college students um, from like the West and, let's just call it the East and the West to be be simple. And what I was uh, doing was um, they had like volunteer facilitators and I was one of them. And so we would basically kind of steward these conversations. Um, You know, every week you'd have these college students getting together and you have like a different theme. Sometimes the theme could be like um, social issues like women's rights, right? Or like, you know, uh, religious diversity. Other weeks, it could be like a political topic, right? So it could be like the war in Iraq or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, you know, or something else. Um, And so basically, the idea was to help these college students to meet people from a different culture, different country, um, and to discuss openly, like these topics so that you could foster better uh, understanding uh, between the two sides. And hopefully, these students, you know, would have conversations with people in their friends, community, their families. And so, you know, hopefully, that, um, you know, tolerance and awareness and respect for people from you know, the other, other uh, students' countries is something that would, you know, kind of spread in uh, each student's respective society. So that's basically what we were trying to do. Um, but yeah, it was a great experience, very rewarding working with young people. Um, some of them I've had the opportunity to meet in real life, um, you know, during the course of my travels. Um, but yeah, it's been a, it's a fantastic uh, program and a fantastic organization
2: what was the biggest i guess learning that you took sitting in on those kind of discussions of two people that are on two completely different sides of the fence you know i i understand the the aim is to i guess create an understanding and empathize with where the other side's coming from and why they have yeah. this perception of the situation but i'm curious as a third party how is it for you what what is the biggest what are the takeaways that you took from that
1: yeah Um, I think one takeaway is actually just like how similar people are. And I think this is something that like you also like, you know, observe traveling. I think cultures are different. Sure. But I think at the core, like people have a lot in common as well. And I think you see those commonalities, right? We weren't always only talking about like heavy topics. Like sometimes we'd also like we actually start off the season talking about like personal like topics, you know, what are people interested in? And you found a lot of like bonding kind of at that personal level. So I think just like how similar we are actually is one thing that uh, comes to mind. And I think the second thing is just how um, stereotypes are best um, combated when you actually meet people who are different than you. Um, And I, you know, we see that in so many like different contexts, right? Whether it's like race relations in the U S or, you know, um, American perceptions of Arabs, like the, the, The more that you know people from a different group the less likely it is that you're gonna have you know uh biases or um prejudices against them because that person then becomes not like you know just some different other like creature (laughs) that that person actually becomes like exactly a a friend right or it becomes like a partner it becomes somebody that like you know and you care about so and those are very simple observations but i think they're also in some ways just really profound takeaways that I've, I've understood as a course of that experience.
2: Yeah. So you really, people are, like you said, people are a lot more similar than we think they are and that, or than we think we are. And it helps, I guess, humanize Mm. the other person and the other situation. And I guess the topic, whatever topics being discussed, once you can understand another person's perspective, doesn't necessarily mean you agree with it, Mm. but, at least you have a better understanding of where they're coming from you know i absolutely always, i'm a bel- i'm a believer in just talk i think talking is I, it's not the key but it's the first and it's a crucial step to getting to any new you know new path new area new way of thinking it has to all start with a conversation
1: 100 percent. yeah i couldn't agree more with that
2: and uh ravi for my last few questions First of all, thank you so much for today. This has been awesome and your experience is really, really interesting and I really, really enjoyed it. So with all the work that you've done and then with the World Economic Forum and, you know, you seem to have a passion to, you know, connect people and engage people on a global scale. So you're trying to make an impact in as large a way as you can looking forward what is what are the goals that you have for yourself what do you what would you like to achieve in the next you know let's say 5 years what would you what would you hope to achieve and we'll get to the last question after that
1: yeah that's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I've gotten this question over the course of my life uh, when I applied for college and when I applied for my first job and when I applied for my second job and so on and so forth. <laughs> and I think yeah, the, yeah. the one thing that I have just learned is that it's really hard to plan, right? We, we talked about um, the strategy versus culture, right? And yeah. it's really hard to come up with a strategy and for things to, you know, just kind of follow that so to tell you the truth, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I think I know what kind of guides me in terms of my values. Um, you know, I'm passionate about uh, the potential of building communities. I'm passionate about helping people to collaborate. Uh, I'm actually also really passionate about technology, which is uh, something else that I've uh, had the opportunity to work on in the past. Um, and about, you know, having uh, a social impact. And so I hope in the next five years that those core elements of my goals will continue to, to be a part of my story. Um, but whether that takes me to, I don't know, to Mongolia or to Botswana or staying here in Abu Dhabi, I don't know. Like that, that, <laughs> that we're
0: going we're gonna to <laughs> see.
1: But all I know is that it's going to be uh, an exciting uh, journey. And yeah, I'm just really looking forward to where, where that journey is going to go
2: yeah that's awesome and you know saying i don't know is probably the most honest answer people can can give sometimes and it's okay to not know but like you said <laughs> as long as you're working or gonna like working in what you want to achieve in the world and the impact that you want to make and the values that you have as long as you have that the rest is just you know we'll see what happens you know and yeah. a lot of times like you said plans a lot of times don't <laughs> necessarily work out the way we expected them to
1: Yeah, and I think that's what keeps life interesting. I think if you have those. Yeah, I think this is maybe just like good reflections for people who may be thinking about like their long term goals. Like it's it's less important to know like the position that you're going to get or or, you know, like try to achieve. Um, I think it's more important to know like who you are and what you care about. And I think if you don't lose sight of that, you're going to be okay.
2: You're going to be in a good place. No, I totally, totally agree. It's all about, and because uh, from this book I read, it's all about identity-based goals, not a means-based goal. At the end of the yeah. day, that's what will keep you, you know, moving in that direction. And my last question for you, Ravi, is: What's the message that you'd like people to take home with you today?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think it, it's actually it would be my my last one, right? It's just to really like know who you are. I think. The world is fascinating there are so many different things that you can do Um, i know that we've talked quite a lot about like community in this particular discussion so i think i think the maybe just two things that i would share is just like number one like really think about what you want uh in this life and i think the second would be um to really focus on building relationships um community is a part of like what you know every human being is going to experience in this life and i think a large part of like how happy and fulfilled people are going to be is to a, know who they are and then seek out other people with whom you share some of those um, values and visions um, and as long as you're spending time cultivating that and maintaining those relationships i think you're setting yourself up for um, a happy life
2: yeah so know yourself find out what you want and develop and create and seek out the relationships of people who share that with you and you should be in a pretty good place
1: definitely
2: awesome Ravi thank you so so much for your time man I've loved this conversation and I really learned a lot and from your experience and you have a very unique perspective on you know community and so on so I really really appreciate it And to everyone listening, guys, thank you so much. Uh, It's been great. I hope you learned something from this conversation. Really appreciate it. And as always, hope it helps. Peace.